The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Help, I need somebody. Help, not just anybody. Help, you know I need someone. Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences. You will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, your host. I'm a physician trained in Britain and living in Canada. Since retiring from medical practice, I've become an activist for family caregiving which explains the name of the show, Family Caregivers Unite. Now, today's episode focuses on a question that worries many family caregivers. The question is, what will happen to my child after I'm gone? The question especially worries parents, and for that matter, grandparents, who are caring for children with incurable physical and mental conditions. These children require care, not just for their health, but also for the quality of their lives. And so often, family caregivers are the eyes, the ears, and voices of the children. And that's one of several reasons why family caregivers are so concerned about the question of how their responsibilities and how their caring are to be replaced when they're gone. Now, to explore this crucial question, I'm going to welcome Ken Pope and Cynthia Martineau. Now, first... Uh, I'll introduce Ken by saying that he's practiced law in Ontario, Canada, since 1980. He offers specialized support to individuals with disabilities and their families. He is dedicated to providing legal, tax, and estate planning services to families in Ontario and across Canada. Through his experience in working with special needs families, he's become an expert in writing wills with trust, which ensure that parents of children with disabilities can protect inheritances while preserving government disability benefits. He's knowledgeable in a wide range of legal topics important to family caregivers, such as powers of attorney, elder law, and succession planning. He's been a founding member and has served as a president and has been on the board and committees of numerous non-profit organizations. Cynthia Martineau is a registered nurse with 25 years of healthcare experience. She served for 21 years in the Canadian Forces, where her responsibilities included National Practice Leader for Aeromedical Evacuation and Medical Operations Officer for the Air Force on behalf of the Canadian Forces Medical Group. Her responsibilities included overseeing the operational aeromedical evacuation support for the current late NATO-led mission in Afghanistan. Her responsibilities also included um, the, the part of the, her work in Afghanistan, but now her responsibilities include health care planning and integration 
for all the healthcare providers funded by one of Canada's regional healthcare networks. She holds the Masters in Healthcare Management and two certificates in Healthcare Administration for Acute Care and Community Health, and she's a certified health executive. She has two daughters, Rachel, who has Rett Syndrome, and Chloe. Ken and Cynthia, welcome to Family Caregivers Unite. Glad to be here, Gordon. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thank you. Now, I'm going to start with Ken, please. Tell us more about your background as a lawyer and what actually brought you into the field of estate planning for family caregivers of children with special needs. Well, as uh, you mentioned, I've been practicing for the last 30 years. And um, in uh, February 26th of 96, actually, um, I was asked to fill in for another lawyer to make a presentation to the uh, Schizophrenia Society chapter in Ottawa uh, about what, what we call Henson Trusts, special needs trusts. And so I learned what I could from a, a binder that had been produced uh, back in 93. And I spoke with this group, and when I was finished talking with them, I realized how many families there were who didn't know what they needed done and if they did know, which a few did, uh, where to find a lawyer, others, uh, professionals who knew what to do. And I thought, well, that's very interesting because, you know, from a, a business context, it's a, a niche market. It just runs very, very deep. And it's, it's an opportunity, I felt, to do good and to do well. Now, I'm by no means rich, but I, I work with a great number of families, and it's very enriching to work with them. And uh, so I've just gradually learned my trade over the years. Now I do a combination of about 11 different things for families who, who, who all have a composite need for some of these 11 different things, from wills and trusts to benefit applications to guardianship applications to inheritances where there is no trust or there is no will, uh, the loss of social benefits for the child with special needs, and so I've just uh, learned my craft and added each year, and um, now I, I'm pretty good at it. <laughs> Great. Cynthia, please start by telling us about Rett syndrome, and then explain to us what brought you to seek Ken's advice about estate planning. Um, well, um, Rett syndrome uh, is actually fairly new, I guess, in the uh, diagnosis of clinical syndromes. Um, it was first uh, noticed in 1965 by uh, Dr. Andreas Rett, where he actually had a clinic and uh, happened to walk into his waiting room one day and noticed um, two girls not, not related to each other who were um, showing similar symptoms. And from there, he was able to determine that there was a unique syndrome attached to these um, symptoms in, that he was seeing, and, um, and thus uh, Rett syndrome became known. Um, certainly, there are lots of challenges uh, related to Rett syndrome. Um, usually, uh, uh, it's primarily in females. Uh, approximately 1 in 10,000 is the latest uh, numbers that we are aware of. Um, and it's predominantly in females because uh, boys that are affected with Rett syndrome often die. Um, it's uh, an X chromosome anomaly, so with boys only having one X chromosome, they're uh, greatly disadvantaged. And if they do survive birth, they often die within the first year of, uh, of, uh, of their life. Um, some of the symptoms related to it uh, certainly is a regression. Similar, uh, it's often misdiagnosed as autism because of the regression that's often seen around the 18-month mark. 
Um, many, most don't speak, uh, aren't able to speak, uh, can't walk. Uh, lots of uh, medical issues around seizure activity, um, scoliosis and back problems, um, and, and reflux, uh, stomach problems and heart issues. Um, so the parents become uh, very quickly uh, medical experts in a lot of this because many clinicians even today are largely unaware of this syndrome and, and so the parents become the advocates and the information for um, even the clinicians, the, the physicians that they're seeing uh, when they go to a hospital or their family doctor um, to keep them apprised of the latest medical management for Rett syndrome. Right. What so, brought you to seek um, Ken's advice? Um, well, certainly uh, with our back, uh, as I mentioned, uh, the type of work that I do, um, and, uh, and my husband equally has a, a job where we're required to travel a lot. Um, we, uh, we are dealing still uh, with all the caregiver needs and with the distance that we have from our family supports. We had a great concern for um, uh, Rachel and what her needs would be for the future. And we, I actually uh, came across Ken at an Ontario Rett Syndrome Association conference, which I was organizing, and certainly his presentation there gave me a pause to think about what planning I had done and really uh, what gaps, and I, I perceive them now to be big gaps based on his uh, presentation, and I thought that it was uh, time that I got on with uh, some planning for my child's future. Right. Ken, I'm going to ask you, um, you're based in Canada. Um, please say whether you think that the kind of problems we, we face in Canada are the same in the U.S. In other words, do family caregivers in the U.S. also need to consider estate planning in the way that you encourage Canadian family caregivers to do? Yes, um, and, and what is done is very similar. Um, in the States, the special needs trusts tend to be statutory trusts, whereas in Canada... Ontario, uh, the, the Henson Trust case is case law rather than statute. And so the different states uh, have differing legislation, but the bottom line is that there are special needs trusts that um, are put in place to provide for the child um, without disqualifying the child from the other social supports and benefits that they, they otherwise would receive so that what the parents and the family want to try to do with their own resources uh, to help to provide for the child because... Um, Generally speaking, the other supports are, are typically inadequate. Um, these arrangements can be made. Um, I've assisted families across the province, across Canada, Isle of Man, London, England, Barbados, Florida, California, Michigan, North Carolina. Uh, it's the same so, issue. It's the same issue for all of these families. Right. Now, talking of issues, Cynthia, and we've only got a couple of minutes before the break, um, so could you please tell us what, in your mind, are the top three challenges that you think about as the parent of Rachel, um, and what are those three really uh, saying to you about what you have to do when you're not going to be around for, those, for Rachel? Um, certainly, uh, well, there's, uh, yeah, there's many. Uh, certainly uh, one of the, the big pieces uh, for a challenge is getting, getting her the services and support she needs to have a quality of life similar to what she has to now. Um, uh, she's, uh, she, I think the second piece is she's vulnerable. Um, she needs protection and, and absolutely needs oversight for her well-being. 
and uh, certainly we're in the best position to do that right now, um, but we're not always going to be here. Um, I need, and we need somebody who can communicate her needs, who knows uh, knows what her needs are uh, currently and going forward, and to be able to communicate that in an appropriate fashion so that she can be assured of some security in her life going forward. Right. Now, we are running into the break, so we're going to take the break now, but we're going to come back to these issues. So it's time for us to pay the rent. This is Dr. Gordon Adderley, and my guests are Ken Pope and Cynthia Martineau. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel. Please stay tuned because we will be back. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you ready to go green? You've asked, and we've heard you. Voice America presents the Green Talk Network. Environmental topics are at the forefront of our society, and the Green Talk Network is here to keep you up to date on the latest trends and innovations for the eco-conscious lifestyle. We'll help promote a variety of ideas on the environment, from global warming issues to how you can become more eco-friendly in your daily activities. Be a part of the solution, not the problem. Visit the Green Talk Network page on voiceamerica.com and tune in to help spread the green. Entrepreneurial Insights is your weekly excursion into the world of business ownership. Presented by Sunbelt Business Brokers, the leading business brokerage and intermediary firm in the world, Entrepreneurial Insights will examine critical issues that impact both existing and prospective business owners. If you own or want to own a small business, listen for Entrepreneurial Insights with John Davies, Pino Boccinello, and Matt Ottaway. Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. You know I need someone. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at mymonami.com. That's doc, letter G, at mymonami.com. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and our two guests, Ken Pope and Cynthia Martineau. Our topic is the question, what will happen to my child after I've gone? Now, I want to focus on the key concerns that have got to be considered for the future of the child with special needs. And let's start off with Ken. Just please say to us, how does estate planning help answer this question, what will happen to my child when I'm gone? Uh, state planning, simply put, is uh, pr- providing for your family the ones you love when you're gone. And it's uh, the legal tools involve uh, wills and trust provisions, special needs trust provisions, uh, which will receive an inheritance, receive proceeds of an insurance policy. And you, these, um, these can be multi-generational trusts carrying on from a grandparent to a, a parent of a child with special needs and onward. And uh, while the child is alive, 
often there's uh, guardianship issues. Who has legal standing to make health choices, physical choices, uh, financial choices for these children? But primarily it's after the parents are gone. Right. And uh, there's certain tax issues that need to be dealt with. There's the succession issues of who would be the appropriate trustees and uh, what would the succession of those trustees be. And in many cases, you don't know who the trustee will be who is closer to the child's age. You you might know who it is right away, an aunt and uncle. Uh, it might be a brother or a sister. Uh, but in many, many more cases in today's world, there aren't other brothers and sisters. Or if there is, there's one. And, and they happen to uh, be in British Columbia or California. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the question, you know, what will happen involves wills and trusts. I find that about um, of the people who come to my seminars, uh, there are about 50% don't have wills. And this is of people who attend the seminars. And of those who do have wills, a very small percentage have any trust provisions. Now, of course, uh, in, in the case of the Henson case in Ontario, and in, in the United States as well, the, these, these special needs trusts have been around for um, uh, 30 years, 20 years. Uh, so it's not like you know the word hasn't been out there. Mm-hmm. It's just people don't get to it. And part of it is they don't get to it because they don't know who can help them or if they have been helped, if they've really received what they need. Right. Uh, now I'm going to just pass this over to Cynthia because Cynthia was saying what the things were that were in her mind that were vitally important for Rachel, um, you know, in the event um, when when Cynthia is no longer able to be the family caregiver. So, Cynthia, I want to ask you, what is it particularly about estate planning that's important for you and your family? Well, I I think that uh, as I uh, with with our um, Current environment we live in, uh, we're we're part of the new family dynamic. Uh, we've moved away from our immediate families due to work, and we don't have them nearby to rely upon uh, for support. So we really need to establish uh, a, a proper support through a plan and, and have that in place for uh, Rachel to ensure her security. And I think uh, that will provide comfort to myself, my husband. And also for uh, you know anybody I'm reaching out to to act in our place, and that they have a direction and, and are comfortable knowing that they are providing the support that we would like for Rachel when we're when we're not no longer around. Right. Ken, I'm coming back to you about the importance of estate planning, and I wanted you to drill down into this. Um, let's talk about this children with special needs. Broadly speaking, what sort of special needs are you? do you have in mind when you're talking about estate planning? Is it all or is it just some? And then, please, could you just spell out for us why the family planning is so important for those, those particular children? Well, the first issue is that um, in most cases, almost all cases, um, a, a direct inheritance for a child to help provide for them, firstly, they couldn't manage it themselves. So you need a trust arrangement of some sort. And then secondly, unless this is done correctly, this new asset or the income that it generates is available to the child for their own support. And so as a result, they lose whatever other provincial or, or state benefits they would have received. So the parents, the advocates, all all lifelong for these children, have worked hard to, to cobble together the supports for these children 
And then at the moment that the parents are gone, all of a sudden this inheritance disqualifies the child from the supports that the parents were able to arrange. So this is the worst of all scenarios. Um, and as well, you need someone that you know will be there to to look out for the child, check on the child, provide things that the child needs but, but can't get from other sources. I had one uh, mother, you know, one mother told me, I just want to live 60 seconds longer than my than my da- my daughter. Well, that's a not that's a plan, but I, I'm not sure it's a plan for everyone. Mm-hmm. And I had one mother who, who set up a very small trust because she didn't have much money. Uh, it was a trust for $5,000, and the reason was her her son was in a fully supported living situation, and by setting up this small trust with a little bit of money, she uh, had trustees. And these people had a small amount of money to go and buy him a present on his birthday and to check on him and to get him something for Christmas and to see that he was still alive and well. Mm. And it was all that she could do as a mother. She had a very small estate, but she did this this one thing just to see that he was cared for and that somebody cared. This is the quality of life issue, isn't it? Um, And, Cynthia, this takes me to ask you, and again I'm drilling down into into particular issues, but in the way that Rett syndrome affects Rachel and your family, what are the concerns, the quality of life concerns particularly, that you want to state your estate planning to address? Well, um, I think uh, Ken's just a comment about um, having someone um, to visit them at their birthday and Christmas cannot that alone cannot be un- underestimated for sure as a parent um, you know these individuals are so vulnerable and easily taken advantage of um, I think uh, with estate planning we want uh, we want our family members who are not nearby to understand Rachel and what our needs might be um, uh, we know there are challenges coming for her um, in in living and in in the quality that she is used to, and we want those uh, challenges to be mitigated. Certainly, even as far as just her social um, circumstances, not to mention the medical issues that she may be faced with down the road. Um, we really just want her to be cared for, um, and we need. Certainly, uh, I think any parent would have angst of leaving that child behind and and wondering if they've put the right pieces in place. So I, I think I really want to have some peace of mind that I've established a system of care and support for her after we're gone. Right. Um, Ken, looking at your practice, what are the biggest concerns that family caregivers bring to you? The biggest concern is who will be the trustees of the trust, uh, who will be the child's guardian. Um, and in, lo- in many cases... That is a very hard decision. It's hard for any parent, period, um, you know, especially when kids are younger, to uh, put a name in the guardianship clause in the will, which, by the way, typically don't really have any legal standing. They're just a, a nomination of who you think you'd like to be the guardian. But all parents, you know, this issue of, well, if I was gone, regardless of whether you have a child with special needs, who would you name as your guardian to care for your child? This is a very hard decision. And when your child has special needs... It makes it, if if anything, a harder job for whomever you might name. And 
the, the uh, number of people available, the children, siblings, cousins, nieces, and nephews, um, are decreasing in, in Canada, the U.S., North, North uh, uh, Europe, because people are having fewer children. So the, I would say the biggest issue is who will it be? And in some cases, uh, it's a sort of a consortium uh, of, of family and friends, neighbors, circle of support. Uh, it's, a t- it's a job to do this. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes it's a trust company. A trust company would certainly adequately manage the money. Um, and the, the, also the question of w- when, when do I make this transition for my child? Do I wait until I die? You know, the child is at home with mother, dad's predeceased, and between the two of them, they get along pretty well. Mom handles the bills, makes sure that the, that, you know, they they can live together with the income the two of them have, although it's modest. Uh, the son can drive a car if the mother tells him where to drive. Uh, he can shovel the snow, you know, carry the groceries. So as mother gets more elderly, they can still stay together in the home. But then when mom dies, what then? And sometimes what you have to do because if you're on a waiting list for supports and services, for shelter and, you know, supports, as long as the boy is at home with his mother, he's doing fine, thank you very much. He's not going anywhere. Sometimes you have to create a crisis. You have to create a health crisis for the mother. Uh, you have to um, sell the house and uh, have mom move and uh, flag this for the waiting list that the boy is on. Uh, there's various techniques to try to make this transition before mom dies, but that's those are the biggest concerns. Uh, when do I trigger this transition? How do I do it? And when I'm gone, who's going to be there to hold the strings together? Right. Now, Cynthia, I'm going to ask you a very swift question, but we'll carry on with it after the break. And that is, are the kinds of things that we're talking about now, the things that you hear from other family caregivers whose children have special needs. Are we telling a story between the three of us that resonates with what you're hearing from these other parents? Oh, for sure. I, I think that, um, you know, when, when we first, uh, our children are first diagnosed, there, there is a, a flush of, of supports, and uh, certainly that carries on through school in, in many regards in that um, there's assistance to help the child into the school system and and support with their speech and support with their movements and that carries on largely into high school but once you hit adult then into the teen years and transitioning to adulthood in ontario we have the uh... ontario disability support um, odsp and uh... but a lot of the other supports disappear right now i'm going to come back to that after the break um, because that's a key key question so we will take the break now um, this is Dr. Gordon Avery. My guests are Ken Pope and Cynthia Martineau. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel. Please stay with us. We will be back. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. 
The incidence of autism has increased at an alarming rate. Approximately 1 in 150 children are affected by autism, giving autism the undesired ranking as the most prevalent childhood developmental disorder in the U.S. 67 children will be diagnosed today. That is nearly one child every 20 minutes. Autism One, a conversation of hope, brought to you by Enzymedica, hosted by Terry Aranga, illuminates how right now there is more reason than ever for individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their families to have the best hope for the brightest future. Autism is treatable and given appropriate therapies, children are recovering. With well-known researchers and doctors, members of Congress, and expert service providers from a wide range of disciplines, Terry offers interviews and insights highlighting the progress in areas related to autism spectrum disorders such as biomedical research and treatment, communication, education, and behavioral modalities, sociological and philosophical issues, and legislative advocacy and insurance concerns. Autism One, a conversation of hope, broadcasts each Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Autism One, a conversation of hope. Through education and conversation, there is hope. You gotta believe. Listen up. Conceive Magazine is now on the air, live and on demand on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific. Hosted by Kim Hahn, founder of Conceive Magazine. Conceive On Air offers comfort and emotional support to women contemplating starting or expanding their family by consulting noted professional experts and by sharing the insights and experiences of others. Kim wants to share her experiences to educate and empower women. Conceive On Air is the only complete resource destination that inspires and informs future moms about their fertility on the journey to parenthood. Conceive On Air with Kim Hahn, celebrating the creation of families. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You know I need someone. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at mymonami.com. That's doc, letter G, at M-Y-M-O-N-A-M-I dot com. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and our two guests, Ken Pope and Cynthia Martineau. Our topic is the question, what will happen to my child after I'm gone? Um, Now, I'm wanting to talk in this segment about arrangements and questions for the future quality of life for a maturing child, a maturing child who no longer has a family caregiver. And I just want to carry on with Cynthia. I asked her if what we're talking about now is the kind of thing that she hears from other family caregivers with children with special needs. Cynthia, please carry on answering that question. Um, sure. It's, you know, anything, uh, the, uh, there is a lot of anxiety out there for sure. Um, as you know, in the future, nothing is certain. And I think many parents feel they can't rely on the current, what current governments, government supports uh, are there to be there as we hope in the, in the time to come when their children will need it. The programs, even the programs, we're seeing this as our children age um, that are existing today have 
have been cut and, and they're being uh, limited and truly may not be there uh, tomorrow when they need them. So I think many parents really, um, with this anxiety, need to find some comfort in knowing their child will be taken care of. And, and they're attempting to plan today uh, because they can't expect the services to be there when they need it. And all they want is to make sure that there's appropriate caregivers and supports that can make the choices on their behalf that they would make themselves if they were there to do so. Right. Ken, what types of future financial arrangements do you advise against for these children, that is, children who are maturing into adults where there's no family caregiver? What do you advise against, and why don't you favor these, these arrangements? Well, what I find is that um, I, the, what I would advise people not to do, firstly, is to um, do nothing, all right? Yeah. You know, half the population doesn't have a will. But beyond that, to not just leave it, for example, to leave it all to the other two children, you know, leave nothing to the child with special needs, uh, hope that the, uh, the moral suasion um, of their upbringing uh, will compel them to uh, provide for their da- sister or brother, uh, firstly, there's no guarantees for that. Secondly, it's very tax inefficient because, of course, the income generated by that other share of the inheritance is taxed in the hands of, the, of these children and taxes are paid where if you had a proper trust arrangement, often the income would be declared in the hands of the child with special needs and taxes would not be needed, not, not paid. Um, as well, it provides a, uh, a proper vehicle you know, to, maintain, to care for the child's inheritance or needs um, I have situations where, for example, the uh, the father died. There was a will, but he had put all of his investments into a, a joint investment account with his one daughter in, in, t- in one of these little towns. So he died, and the daughter got it, and there was no probate, and there was no probate fees, which are very small, actually, in Canada. But she now she's all got it all. There's no trust provisions because nothing flowed through the will. And so she has this asset and two sisters, one with special needs, so then she comes to me and says, Ken, now what do I do? All, all that this father did was leave the problem to his daughter. You know, th- this is not what a, a parent should do. It, and it's very unelegant and inefficient. Um, and I think next, the thing that they should not do is get assistance from lawyers, financial advisors, accountants, professional support that you presume know what they're doing when in fact they don't really know at all. That's, that's that's perfectly fair. Now, Cynthia, you were talking in the last question about the quality of life of children who are who've matured into adults, um, but who don't have the family caregiver to provide the care for them. I want you to tell us more about the quality of life that you fear, or you've seen, or you've heard about for the children in that situation. Well, I, I think um, I think certainly first of all those that these children understand way more than we we could ever know. We can we can see it in their eyes. Um, they experience joy as we do. Uh, it's it's pure. It's not falsified. There's no pretense. It's much like a, a very young child. And as a parent, certainly we'd want them to enjoy life to the maximum po- possible. Um, I think, uh, like any child, the, the quality is improved uh, when it's a, you know when there's a caring family, when there's lots of supports involved um, to engage them in uh, social settings, in in the normal family routine. But when that's not possible, I think uh, we behoo- we behoove to uh, plan to support 
the quality as much as we can and, and to do so throughout the lifespan. Yeah. Ken, still with the um, quality of life, you mentioned the birthday and Christmas gifts. What are the things that can um, be provided for by estate planning, whether it's from people with kind of substantial resources or people with not very substantial resources? What are the things you would highlight for quality of life? Well, it's very um, creative. Um, if it's a modest modest estate, which most are, uh, then what happens is this, uh, again, modest amount is put into the trust, and often the question is, how much should I leave? You know, the, the idea being, should I leave it all? So you have that discussion. Uh, typically, it's not all, but sometimes. And uh, it's often a creative question. Uh, for example, I have one client, he's now deceased, and he um, set up a trust for his daughter, his only child, and he made his neighbor and her adult daughter, the, tr the executors and trustees, not family because there wasn't any family, and they took on this task. So he passed on, and he left a sizable uh, trust for the, for the girl. It was um, about $400,000, I think. And she was in a supported living situation, which was quite appropriate for her, and her other needs were very modest. And so what the uh, trustees did, partly because he had talked about doing this you know, during his lifetime, was uh, they gave about $100,000 to the organization that provided her with her group home shelter, uh, and it was used to build a, uh, a sunroom conservatory for the building, the house that she was in. And it improved her quality of life along with the others. And you know, uh, in other cases, uh, the trust helps to replace the carpet for the group home. In other cases, all that is done or that is needed is to make sure that the child uh, goes to the summer camps, uh, which are helpful and that the child looks forward to them every year. Uh, there's the, the camps are special and appropriate for these children, these adults, uh, but they're expensive. Yeah. And a lot of times, the things that, that the trust can do for the child when the parents are gone is more than the parents could do. Because when the parents were alive, they weren't wealthy. But lots of people die wealthier than they lived. You know, you, you live owning a home, but you can't eat it. And you have life insurance, but you're not dead. And so on. Sure. That's very clear. Now, I'm going to switch tracks for a moment, and I'm going to go to Cynthia. Cynthia, I want to ask you this. What makes the sun shine for you in thinking about the future of Rachel, your child with special needs? What, what really makes the sun shine? I, uh, I think that uh, what makes the sun shine is that she'll, she'll have a quality of life similar to what she has with her family now, um, that that carries on. Uh, to have uh, family involvement in her life, that there's somebody there to bring her a birthday present um, and and to sing Christmas carols with at Christmas. So I think that's really important. Yeah. Ken, what makes the sunshine for you in the work you do helping family caregivers with estate planning? It's working with these families. It's, it's just a, such a privilege and a pleasure because, firstly, a lot of these families, the caregivers, uh, have the opportunity, they, they may not, not recognize it, but what they have is an opportunity to become more human than other people because they have been so loving, so selfless, so brave that they have the opportunity, Even though, and it just happens because they, they take this opportunity 
they become more human than some others. Uh, they don't know that they are brave. You know, courage is, is not being not, afra- not afraid. It's action in the face of fear. And that's what they do. They get up every morning and put one foot in front of the other, being fearful of what the next day will bring. But they do it, and they do it in a selfless way. You know, they don't think they're special. And I remember one mother, she, she, said she had a, a daughter, and the daughter had a lot, a lot of needs, very high needs. And some of these needs were such that they were very distressing to parents. And I remember she was a, a good woman, a, a religious woman to some extent. And she told me, she said, the only comfort I have with all of that I've had to bear is that it's me and someone else didn't have to bear it because I have faith and I can do this. And I'm just glad that it's me and not someone else. Those are very powerful things and very powerful principles. And I want to come back to Cynthia. You've both suggested that the family caregiver has to be the eyes, the ears, and voice of the child. And um, you've said and implied that that is the case for you, Cynthia. Now, I'm asking you just quickly the question, what is it that family caregivers should think about when they are planning to replace themselves as the eyes, ears, and voice for their children with special needs? What do they really need to think about? Yeah, uh, that's a that's a big question, and I'm sure many ask themselves that uh, uh, on a daily basis, but probably don't take the time to put anything in motion. Certainly, uh, you know, we need to inform whatever supports are out there of what your child needs and how how that child may communicate with you. Um, you need to advise your family of your uh, wishes. And certainly getting a will and engaging in estate planning uh, to build a network of support if, if one doesn't exist is, is really important. And I would say that um, keeping the child's information uh, together, papers, referrals, um, you know, doctor reports in a, in a central location, and if required, as it is in my case, um, like a key communications chart, like how does she respond when she's hurt or frightened or sad, and, and what, makes her, what comforts her and makes her feel better. Right. Now, again, it's time for the break. It's the tyranny of the break, I'm sorry to say, um, but we will be back. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, and my guests are Ken Pope and Cynthia Martineau. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel. We will be back. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Ready to chat about your favorite soap operas? The daytime discussion is here with Dan J. Kroll and Soap Central Live. For the past 15 years, Dan has been dishing and discussing on SoapCentral.com. And now he's taking the talk to the airwaves of the Voice America Variety Channel. You'll go behind the scenes with the biggest stars of daytime, along with guest commentary from the Soap Central columnists. And we'll take your questions and comments during our live show. Soap Central Live, every Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. What would you do if you were stuck in the middle of nowhere? What would you do if you faced an emergency or disaster? Find out by listening to The Drive to Survive with host Tim McWelch. 
The program is all about wilderness survival, emergency preparedness, and self-sufficiency. Tim has been a professional survival instructor for nearly 15 years, and his tips and practices could save your life. Tune in to The Drive to Survive every Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You know I need someone. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at mymonami.com. That's doc, letter G, at M-Y-M-O-N-A-M-I dot com. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and our two guests, Ken Pope and Cynthia Martineau. Our topic is this crucial question, what will happen to my child? after I'm gone. So let's talk about what's needed to enhance support for children with special needs who mature as adults and are without family caregivers. So Ken, question to you first. What are the changes that you believe are most needed to improve support for these maturing children? It's very simple. What what is needed is better communication and and better collaboration and better cooperation uh, between the um, provincial, state, and federal uh, supporting and funding organizations and the families. And the the families uh, step up to the plate in each situation. You know, they are the ones who are the caregivers. They they are the ones who become the specialists, become the experts on on their child's needs. Uh, The others uh, are really supporting professionals, supporting agencies. And I think what some of those professionals and agencies forget or just never occurred to them, is that they're not it. They're not the center. The child and the family are the center. They're the ones that always cared and always will care and will keep caring as long as they are alive on an intergenerational basis. And I don't think that that these families are are, are properly valued. And to put it in context, you know, if you compare these supporting organizations and, and the family, and if, if this were in the context of a, uh, a bacon and egg breakfast, you know, the, the, the chicken's involved, but the pig's committed. And I think this is often forgotten by professionals who think that really they do more, know more than the family and that they know better and that they have policies and procedures that should apply to this child when, in fact, they don't. The parents know better, frankly. Now, what's happening is if the families were brought into closer collaboration with the provincial and state and federal supporting organizations and agencies and charities, what would happen is the families would bring more to the table, and it could be brought to the table in a better way. For example, I've often been asked by parents, if I donate my house uh, to such and such an an agency, uh, could it set up a group home and could my daughter stay there? Well, in practice, this isn't happening, and the reason it's not happening is that the, the, the bricks and mortar isn't the expensive part. It's the 50 or 60 grand a year that has to be allocated for supports. And so at the present, there is no effective way for the families collectively to come forward and say, look, okay, we belong to this association. We all have children of approximately the same age with similar sorts of needs who have taken part in programs together for the last 25 years, and now we, as a group of families, 
would like to come together and we will set up trust arrangements and we will donate houses and we will uh, donate rental properties and instead of each family in its own small way trying to to just solely use the resources that it has which it does they do there 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 has to be a bigger community approach a, 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 a town approach a provincial approach because approximately one family in 10 is either the parent of or the sibling of a child with special needs and this is just is very conservative so you walk into any room of 100 people and statistically 10 of them are either going to be the parent of or the brother or sister of and this doesn't include the grandparents or the aunts and uncles or the nieces and nephews or the cousins you know if this is not just that child and the number of of those kids there happen to be in this particular town this is much bigger than that and if the agencies could collaborate and be less bureaucratic and work with these families and not ignore the parents to try to delay the time that services are to be delivered to these kids, that these services could be pulled together and delivered in an affordable way on, on an ongoing basis rather than on a crisis basis when the parents die. Right. Cynthia, I'm going to hand, hand this question to you too. What are the changes that you believe are most needed to improve support for these maturing children? What changes do you want to see? Well, certainly I think uh, uh, certainly a change in an approach in how supports are given. As I mentioned previously, uh, certainly once these children are, are uh, finishing in high school and moving into adulthood, um, there seems to be uh, a, a decrease, a significant decrease in, in these types of support to access, whether it's through specialists or social programming. It's just more challenging to make that transition to adulthood. Um, the supports for families, whether it's through respite funding, um, to allow the children to stay comfortably at home as long as possible. Um, the only way to do that is we have to take care of the families that are doing that supporting. And, and there has to be a program that will continue and can take over when the family supports are exhausted and not driving that family into a crisis situation where the child has to be either inappropriately inappropriately placed or placed in an emergency situation when there is no plan in place. There's a program called Aging at Home, uh, which is aimed at seniors. Um, is there anything like that, Cynthia, that you know about for allowing children maturing into adults to stay at home longer? Are there any specific programs? Um, there's none that I'm aware of. Um, a lot of this programming uh, is uh, aging the home certainly is an initiative uh, from the Ministry of Health, um, and the supports and programming uh, for children with disabilities is largely governed by the Ministry of uh, Community and Social Services for aging aging uh, children. And I'm not aware of anything. There, There is a program, and I'm not familiar with all the details in the passport funding, that certainly gives a lot of support to families who can access that. Uh, but there has been a, a significant decrease in uh, funding available to that program over the past year or so. Uh, I, I believe it's generated a wait list if, uh, and for people to access it. So there is, isn't much money being delivered through that program that I'm aware of. Okay. Ken, to about the things that you've been talking about that you'd like to see, um, in whose best interests are those changes you'd like to see, and why are these interests 
so important? It's in the best interest of, of both the children with special needs and their families and the community. Uh, it makes the community a better place for everyone. It provides examples of care from young ages to old ages uh, because, of course, we're all going to do it, and we might as well have some kind of a logical system. Um, what I, I find interesting is that if you look around demographically, you'll find that um, the age we live in is the age in which the parents of the baby boom generation are passing on. The baby boom parents are in their 80s, typically, and they're passing on. And they had a baby boom of, of children, and they had disabilities, and they didn't die as much as they might have, um, and they've lived longer. Now they're in their 50s and 60s because of the surgical techniques excuse me, honed in the war, and antibiotics. And so now there's lots of 55-year-old uh, men with Down syndrome, for example. We have to have a spectrum of, of continuity for everyone, and it's just in the best interest of everyone because tomorrow it could be your child. And I know for a fact that this is part of the political motivation, an internal political motivation of certain um, significant improvements that we've seen at the federal and provincial level in Canada. And it's because I know that the civil servants and the elected representatives and the politicians, they have kids and brothers and sisters who have disabilities. And they get it. And the sooner everybody gets it, the better. Yeah, that, uh, indeed. Cynthia, I'm going to ask you another philosophical question in a way, but I want to know from you what's really at stake here um, why should the decision-makers in our society implement the changes that you and Ken are advocating? Ken's just said, well, because the bureaucrats and politicians may be in this situation themselves. Um, but what other reasons? What otherwise is at stake here? Cynthia? Well, I think, uh, and I, I think Ken alluded to this, is that the health care has improved, and, and certainly uh, we're seeing people that are living longer. So it's natural that even um, the children that are with disabilities are living longer than uh, could ever have been expected previously. I know that even the, even the children uh, with Rett syndrome, uh, that at uh, one point, you know, they would thought that their life expectancy was into their 20s. Well, we now know of, of cases of uh, individuals who've lived to 55. So certainly the requirements of, in the society to provide for those individuals um, is much more weighty than it would have been thought previously. And certainly they're, these disabled individuals, they're the silent citizens in our world, and they cannot speak up and advocate for themselves. And so it's, it behooves the, the caregivers and, and individuals like Ken who, who can take up the cause and, and help alleviate um, stress on the caregivers. Um, you know, it's important that we uh, keep our caregivers well um, and be able to, so that they can support their children at home as long as possible. It's less costly to the system, and it's certainly a better environment uh, for your child than in an institution. Right. So interesting point is that children with severe um, disabilities and handicaps and the rest of it age like everybody else. And while there's wide acceptance that aging 
he's imposing more and more burdens on healthcare systems and pension funds and the rest of it. I think what I'm learning from you is that that point isn't well enough uh, understood as it relates to children with special needs as they mature. And um, I hope that that's a useful message um, to you as individuals for what you're doing, but also to our audience and any bureaucrats or politicians who happen to be listening. Now, I want to say, first of all, in closing, thank you to our listeners. Please do email us with your comments and questions, um, which I'll be happy to pass on to Ken and Cynthia. And I want to say a special thank you to Ken and Cynthia for so openly sharing with us your experiences, your insights, and your advice. And in both of you, in different ways, I wish you and I really mean this, continuing success, because what you're doing is caring, caring in your own special ways, in your own domains, and I hope that the sun continues to shine for you both in its own particular way. That, that's what I wish, because if it shines for you, it's going to be shining for the sort of children, the types of children we've been talking about. So all success to you. Now, in our next episode, we're going to be talking about family caregivers making sense of the latest research. Please join us, same time, same spot on the Internet. Talk to you then. Thank you again for joining us this week for Family Caregivers Unite with your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Please tune in again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And until then, we hope our program will help make the coming week easier and more hopeful. And I do appreciate you being right.